Hello, and welcome to Jay Fonts' Ignorance, episode 13. I'm sitting with Alex P. Gates, who's uh, running for OPS board, and uh, I wanted to bug him also about some Open Nebraska stuff that you had done. But we were talking off mic about my upcoming adventure. If you wanted to interview me, we can do a pre-interview before the interview, and people subject people to that. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> if you want. Let's do it. <laughs> All right, well, I'm going to shut up, and you can ask me questions. Okay, so you're going for three months. And you don't have a plan. Oh, yeah. So um, so since last fall, I've been threatening to uh, to try life on the road for a while. So my kid's off to college, and uh, my I've got uh, two motorcycles and a dog. So I got a, uh, a travel RV. It's called a toy hauler. So the entire back of the RV folds down into a ramp, and you just roll it up in there, right? So I've been looking at doing this for a while, and... Uh, my and I didn't really have a timeline on it. And my next door neighbor said, "Oh, hey, this message board thing. I found a, a couple who wants to rent a house for three months. So now I've got a hard deadline. So all of a sudden, this thing that I've just been kind of talking about, my house is now rented out for uh, May, June, July. So I'm in my last month of <laughs> knowing of, of having a home for a three month period. So if it's a total disaster, right? I can always retreat." <laughs> <laughs> after three months and try to figure out what's going on. So yeah, my, one of the coolest things I think would be to run up the, the entire West coast. So I've got cousins in San Francisco. I've never visited. I've got friends in Oregon. I've got friends in Washington. I've never been to British Columbia. I lived in Western uh, Canada in uh, Alberta when I was really small for about four years. Uh, so it's just beautiful. The Rocky mountains up there is my recollection of it. So, but I haven't been there in forever. Uh, friends in Edmonton and uh, Calgary, uh, but yeah, run all the way up the West Coast into Alaska. You know, I've never been to Alaska. And then as it starts to get cold again, you know, retreat south. <laughs> sure. <laughs> like, like a snowbird. And the, the thought being that I can just, I can try living wherever the temperature is good, right? So as the temperature gets uncomfortable, you know, leave. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I've got uh, South Dakota plates on the, the truck and the uh, motorcycles. And hopefully I've got the RV from... The RV should be from Indiana into Iowa as of yesterday. So hopefully I'll get that uh, this weekend, maybe. I, I've got to get in contact with the dealer again. But, yeah, the plan is to try to work from the road uh, and and see how that goes. So, so you're going to camp and do that kind of stuff? or Yeah, so there, there's RV parks everywhere. Yeah, sure. Right? And so this, this thing, I mean, it's got a... TV in it. And oh, okay. Power okay. awning. And, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> you know, so it's mostly a garage layout. Like most RVs are mostly housing. And then some RVs are mostly housing, but you can put a dirt bike or a uh, ATV in the back of them. This RV is mostly garage, but then it's got a fold out uh, queen. Uh, well, it's not a queen bed. It's an RV queen bed, <laughs> which is a lot smaller <laughs> than a queen bed. Right? But it folds out. So that way the interior space, which is small, it's only seven by 20. Because I didn't want to spend, you know, I'm not going to drop 60 grand on a truck to haul a monster and then find out that I hate this lifestyle. Right? <laughs> so I couldn't bring myself to buy a bigger truck. Maybe a year from now, if I love this lifestyle, I, I will. I, one of my coworkers has been doing this for 13 years. Like wow. she's, she's, she's a developer like you and I are. Uh, she does uh, QA stuff, project management stuff. But for 13 years, she's been running around with a South Dakota driver's license in her, in her pocket. And she only has to go there once every five years to get her license renewed in person, like once every five years. Mm -hmm. So when my Nebraska license expires or maybe before then, you, all you do is you show up in South Dakota. Oh, sorry. 
the beginning of this story is there's a <laughs> there's a mail forwarding uh, service company. There's lots of them. The one I'm using um, is you sign all these powers of attorney, and now they're your uh, legal address. And then you can do all your vehicle registrations, all your titling, your registrations, and all your auto insurance through them. And you can register to vote remotely uh, in South Dakota, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So you don't actually have to set foot in the state. And it's you know free money for South Dakota because most of the people that do this are rarely in South Dakota. So they're <clears throat> sure. getting tax money when they don't... Uh, they don't have to provide any services. They don't have to provide schools and <laughs> for children that aren't in the state, et cetera. <laughs> right. I'm not tearing up the roads. So, yeah. Oh, sorry. So you show up. <laughs> so the, apparently how this works to get a South Dakota driver's license is once you have legal residency through this company that you paid 300 bucks, you know, a year total or less, I think, now that I'm signed up, um, you show up. You stay in a motel overnight. You take the receipt for the hotel into the DMV, <laughs> and they go, "Oh, okay. You've got an address. You've got a receipt for a hotel for one night. Here's a South Dakota driver's license." <laughs> wow. Yeah. So. So they still let 14 year olds get uh, full blown, I believe, full blown driver's license in South Dakota. Did you know this? I did not know this. Yeah, 14. And this was because I, I lived in Yankton, South Dakota, when I was younger. Um, and 14 year olds are they're just still getting driver's license. And I have, uh, my wife's uncle still lives in, uh, and he lives in Sioux Falls. And I said, are they still letting 14 year olds drive? You know, and he said, yeah, all the time. You know, like, it's fine. I think they have maybe restrictions in terms of like, uh, they can't go after midnight or after 2 a.m. or something like that. But like, 14 year olds, driver's license. I'll be darned. Yeah. yeah. I, I think in Iowa, what I recall is that there was a farm permit, right? <laughs> where you can operate heavy machinery because you grew up on a farm, but, you, and you could operate it on the country roads to and from the mechanic or something. Mm-hmm. And then after the farm permit, I thought there was like a restricted one that you couldn't drive it after dusk, right? So it had to be Yeah, I think they changed hours. that later on. Yeah. So are you from Iowa? <laughs> uh, so I'm from everywhere. <laughs> so, yeah, I was, this is great. This is the first time anyone's asked me a question. <laughs> this whole podcast is an excuse. I'm trying to get people to interview me. <laughs> I just want to talk about myself for my podcast. Um I was born in Missouri, and then we immediately moved to Western Canada, and then we moved to Detroit, and then Iowa, and then my first job out of college, I went to college in central Iowa, uh, Iowa State, Ames, and then my first job was in Yankton, South Dakota, so I lived in Yankton for two years. Oh, cool. Like you just mentioned, yeah. So, nice. where am I from? I, I don't know. I, until Omaha, I'd never lived anywhere more than four years. My, my dad is a minister. He was reassigned every okay. four years. So we were around, uh, you know, we would get reassigned to wherever. So, <laughs> Wow. Yeah, I lived in uh, Yankton. I guess I was kindergarten, first grade, second grade. Uh, and that would have been, oh, gosh, uh, late 80s, early 90s, you know. Yeah. So yeah. What, what took your parents to Yankton? Uh, my dad worked for a utility company, Mid-American Energy. And so he was um, transferred a couple times. Uh, I was born in Iowa. Uh, I lived in a small town called Kingsley, uh, which is uh, around Sioux City area. Uh, and we lived there for a little bit before moving to Yankton. Uh, and then I did, you know, I started school in Yankton and then we moved to Lamar's. And I lived in Lamar's, Iowa, which is north of Sioux City um, for a number of years, like third grade on. I graduated and, and all of that. So we were there for a long time. And then I went to school at University of Northern Iowa in Cedar Falls. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I was reading your bio on. Oh, uh, sure. your, <laughs> I've got many tabs open on my iPad here to to talk about uh, your your school board run. Whenever we want to jump into that, 
But I'm also happy to talk about me for yeah, absolutely. Hours so I, I mean, I, I really like this idea of just like sort of going with without a plan. I mean, I can't help but uh, think that maybe you've thought of. I mean, at least you know you're going west. I mean, so that's at least a pretty a given. Well, yeah, it's west or Florida. I, mean, <laughs> I haven't really decided yet. I mean, okay, I have friends in Florida. And there's scuba diving that I'd really like yeah. to do before it gets too hot. Mm-hmm. So whether or not that can happen before I head out west, I don't know. Sure. And because I have a dirt bike in the in the the toy hauler, I want to uh, ride all over the place, right? So uh, the Ozarks, there's some really pretty uh, state parks uh, in the Ozarks. It's really rocky, apparently. I've never ridden there. That'd be great. Um, in Florida, on the Florida Keys, I'd love to uh, scuba dive the Florida Keys while I'm out there. So. I have way too many hobbies. Uh, I've got a quadcopter, a racing quadcopter that I can fly <laughs> anywhere in the continental U.S. The uh, FAA gave me a registration number and everything. So, wow, uh, all these hobbies will be in a box on the road, and uh, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> yeah. So, are you uh, you're, you're planning to podcast along the way? Blog? Or keep a, any sort of like online journal with this, or is it mainly? Like an introspective thing for you. Yeah, we, we were talking about uh, bl- the book Blue Highways. Uh, William Least Heat Moon, I think, is the name of the author. And apparently it's a pretty famous book. I hadn't heard of it, but uh, a, f- a friend of a friend, uh, when he heard the rumor that I was going to try mobile living for a while, he freaked out and bought me that book on Kindle like immediately, like while he was standing there on his phone, like, you have to read this, it'll change your life. It's a really good book. It's really cool. It's... Uh, Every chapter, you know, is another section of the little tiny town that he found. So the, the, the conceit of the book is that on old maps, all of the non-interstate, non, the non-big roads were all in blue. And so blue highways, um, is going all over the country on the back roads and meeting all these people. And then he runs into people, tells the stories and then interviews them. And you hit some really interesting, colorful characters. So it, it might be might be cool to do uh podcast versions of some of that uh maybe just my tumblr you know so sure. and i'll be cross posting all of it on facebook and twitter so i'll be one of the most online uh hobos <laughs> <laughs> ever probably so i'll be the hobo trying to find the high-speed wi-fi everywhere i go so what's your goal of it all i mean after the three months what is it that you can say this is successful it wasn't successful. I mean, what what are you trying to achieve by by doing this? Basically, seeing if this is a lifestyle that you want to continue. I mean, because like, like you said, you had, you had a coworker that has done this for a long, long time. Is that something you're sort of uh, toe dip into that lifestyle, or? Uh... Well, yeah, I think moving around, growing up, every since we relocated four or six years, that just seemed normal to me. Mm-hmm. And now I've been in Omaha since '99. Oh my God, 17 years now! Wow. Um, which, which was, unf- I mean, I just couldn't even wrap my head around being somewhere 17 years. Um, but I, I think a lot of this is that I've been living so long in a big house, you know, my first house in Omaha and then this, the second house. And, um, it seems like my life has been so full of material possessions. Like you're just constantly buying things and throwing old things away and then buying new things because they're shinier or they're better for whatever reason. And Mm -hmm. it's just this huge pile of stuff and I can't find my stuff because it's hidden under the other stuff. And you know, I can't, (laughs) where did my thing go? Well, I can't find it because I have too much. So now the, the house is, you know, stripped bare and because my son's off to college and, 
you know, I'm empty nesting and, you know, uh, I think the theory is to try to, um, explore what life is like if you're not in this materialism cycle, mm-hmm. you know? So if I just have the things that I know I want, because that's all I can fit in this little box and then wander around and see how that goes. And then after my, uh, I've got a 15 pound dog still. Uh, <laughs> and when she's gone, which will be a couple of years, um, I really like to try uh, international uh, disaster relief kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't swing a hammer to save my life. So nobody wants me on their roofs trying to help them physically. But the large database programming skill set that I have, I think, could apply really well to uh, supply chain management kind of problems uh, in uh, global international disaster uh or like the World Food Program or the UNHCR, the, the mm-hmm. High Council on Refugees. And uh, it'd be really cool to try to take what I've been doing for money for 20 years and try to apply that to, you know, helping people. So, sure. Um, the toy hauler maybe is one step between, you know, a huge house and living in a tent in Africa somewhere. So... <laughs> Yeah, the baby steps, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> so I have to, materialism, you know, I don't want to let it all go all at once. So um, anyway, so when my dog's gone, um, I might end up living in an apartment in Europe somewhere or something for a while and just see see if my skills do apply to that. And, you know, maybe I'll burn out on that after a year and then I'll just go back to trying to make money. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Who knows? So, but I, I don't want to be, you know, 70 years old and I never tried it, you know, I I'd like to uh, like to give it a shot. See, see what there is out there. So that's really cool. Yeah, yeah. We can cut all this out and just talk about you. Yeah, no, no, it's fine. Uh, wow, um, that's neat. Well, and that's you, you have young children. Yeah. So what I'm and and I obviously couldn't either for 18 years while while he was gestating, but now he's an adult. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah. It should be an interesting, interesting thing to try. Wow. So one thing that I think is interesting is that, you know, when you mention these different places where you're going, you're going where, you know, you have cousins that you haven't seen for a while or, you know, maybe some other connections. But what's wild is that, you know, so many people, you know, you've met so many people along the way. You know, a lot of people in Omaha. Uh, It'd be interesting, you know, to have you be more or less like. I don't know, paired up with, with people or recommended that you stop and visit some people along the way that might know a little thing about, you know, whatever particular area you're in, right? So, you know, I know people in Portland or I know people in Seattle or I know people in San Francisco. And to have like a connection with somebody because you know somebody else, like through a mutual friend, mm-hmm. uh, to get sort of the inside, you know, it's always better to visit a place when you know somebody or when you can meet somebody that's, that lives there and knows the area and they can kind of, take you to the you know the best place that you otherwise wouldn't see from like a travel type thing or whatever. So uh, I would hope that when you do this, you put things online and that you kind of okay, stay open to maybe being like introduced to other people along the way and that kind of stuff. I mean, I think that's really neat. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I, I will still have 27 uh, communication vectors, I'm sure. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm, if there's a social media thing, I'm on it. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> but my, my theory is that I don't need a ton of physical things. I just need the toys that I really love, basic clothing and a high speed internet. Yeah. Life's good. What else do you need? Food occasionally, I guess. Uh, so the guy, uh, who started startup weekend, his name is Andrew Hyde. He lives in Boulder. He, uh, I think he first started, 
I think it was before Startup Weekend, or I, I don't know when it was, but he um, basically said he's going to get rid of all of his stuff and, you know, reduce it down to 15 things. And so I think he, he wrote a lot about, like, minimalism and living without material possessions. But he basically took a photo of, you know, his backpack and some socks. And, you know, I mean, like, it was seriously, like, 15 things that he put together. And then he just set off. Uh, and, you know, blogged about it along the way and that kind of stuff. And, you know, as a, you know, as a guy, I've got four children and I live in a house and I've, we've, I've lived in this house, you know, for the longest time that I have in my adult life and, uh, gathering up so much stuff. I can't even imagine reducing down to such a small number of things. So that's eh, really cool. Yeah. Well, everybody lives out of a suitcase for road trips or business trips or yeah. whatever briefly. Right. And I've lived on, uh, scuba boats that I, you know, I can't even, the, the, the toilet is less wide. The walls of the toilet are less wide than my shoulders, you know, and I was on that for a week <laughs> and, uh, uh, Indonesia on a scuba diving boat, uh, for two weeks. That one was pretty spacious, um, comparatively, but all of these things pale in comparison to the glory that is the humongous 140 square foot rolling paradise <laughs> of this. So, so, you know, I don't know. I, uh, uh, yeah, you kind of get used to it, but I, I think, I don't know. We're, we're going to find out. It's going to be, it's going to be interesting. So do you feel like you're in a spot career wise where you're not, you know, feeling like you have to meet like 40 hours of log, like heads down, billable time and all these kinds of things? Or, I mean, is it going to be relaxed enough where you can have a little bit of leniency that way or? Yeah, my, my work schedule has been really flexible for five years now. I've, I've been a telecommuting consultant. Mm -hmm. So as long as I get 40 hours done, for the most part, nobody cares when I do them. Sure. Right? Oh, excuse me. And so we are, we're also one of those companies with the uh, unlimited PTO policy, mm -hmm. right? And there's, I've read uh, some articles about people working in unlimited PTO environments that turn out to be extremely restricted sure. <laughs> in the amount of time away that people actually get. Um, but the company I work for, you know, I've just, I plan ahead and I say, Hey, I'm in Asia for six weeks. So don't bother trying to reach me because you won't be able to kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and I think I've got quite a bit of time banked right now. So if I have to, you know, spend three days staring at the majesty that is Yosemite or whatever, uh, I'm sure that'll be, that'll be just fine. <laughs> so uh, it's going to be great. Yeah. Cool. So you leave May 1st. Is that, uh, or? yeah, yeah. I, my, the house is rented. So I have to be out. So I'm, uh, I rented my nest and the tenants are going to kick me out of it. <laughs> <laughs> so oh. me and the dog, whether we like it or not, we're going to give it a try. And if all else fails, I'll just, you know, crash with my brother. He's got a big house in Denver that, that he uses one master bedroom of. So sure. <laughs> cool. They're, well, good luck. I mean, I'll be thinking about you. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. You will follow me on Twitter or yeah, of course my Tumblr or whatever. I do. Yeah. Not on Tumblr. I should be more on Tumblr, I guess. I rarely use it, but yeah. that, that's, that's my micro blogging mm -hmm. kind of thing of choice. I mean, that, that's a pretty nice format for kind of drafting things over a few hours and then mm -hmm. posting them. So, yeah. Nice. Anyway. All right. Yeah. Let's talk about, uh, your OPS. Now you said you didn't want to talk about the XL pipeline stuff at all, or? Uh, well, you know, I've been a big supporter of Bold Nebraska for a long time. Uh, I think it's kind of cool to be in a place like Nebraska and have a you know a, a progressive group like that that's doing uh, a lot of activism and stuff like that. What's um, the name of the group? Sorry, they're called Bold Nebraska. Okay. 
Uh, and really, I mean, they've just been really a, kind of like the the progressive polo, you know, political voice in Nebraska for a while. Uh, and then when there was, you know, when the, the talk of the Keystone XL pipeline was coming through, uh, they really, you know, that's when they really started focusing on that. Um, <clears throat> and so I admire the work that they do. Uh, and, you know, I recently signed up to be, uh, to join their sort of like list of bold, uh, bold businesses, or I, th- I think is what it's called. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, I got my my uh, my package in the mail the other day with my T-shirt and, and bandana and different things like that, and uh, it's kind of cool. Um, but like I said, yeah, I mean, to to be in a place like Nebraska and have a voice that's you know pretty powerful. I mean, this the Keystone Pipeline that was a big deal. I mean, this was a big deal for political, you know, even up to presidential politics, and they've been talking about this for a long time. Uh, and for the, you know, it's it's really amazing what they were able to accomplish as an organization, uh, keeping that you know keeping the Keystone XL pipeline away from Nebraska for so long. So, what are the concerns about the pipeline? Like, what's yeah? So, uh, when they first mapped it out, uh, my understanding was that they mapped it basically right over the Ogallala Aquifer, mm-hmm. uh, and the idea was well, clearly, I mean, if you have uh, oil spills on these areas, it could taint water systems in, in, in that area. Um, but it's not just regular oil that they're sending through. It's uh, actually from Canada, uh, which is like, tar- and so it's like in the tar sands region. Mm-hmm. So it's like super toxic, sort of really bad, gross oil uh, that they're still going from Canada to to a refinery in, in Houston. Um, and, you know, and a lot of people say, look, you know, uh, we should make sure that we have uh, domestic production of oil and uh, you know, and this is a good thing. It's better to get it from Canada than getting it from some other country and things like that. But the the fact is, the oil was basically shipping you know through the pipeline across you know the United States down to Houston to be refined and then shipped out to other areas. So it's not like we were really gaining anything from having that domestic production. It was just basically refined uh, in uh, in Houston. But I think the biggest thing, and the and the part that probably sticks more than me. I mean, there's environmental concerns, of course. Uh, definitely. And, you know, and I think that we should be moving away from um, that, you know, from from oil and, and moving to, toward other things. But I think the biggest thing for me was the idea that they wanted to come through and take eminent domain, uh, you know, and declare an eminent domain on, uh, you know, on farmers and ranchers in Nebraska uh, when it was for something that was uh, for just a foreign corporation uh, out of Canada. And I think that's a bad precedent to set. Hmm. Yeah. So why? So. If and I've got a friend who works for in the oil industry and that it, it is all tar sand uh, in Alberta. Um, why don't they just have refineries in British Columbia? That way, it stays in the Canadian system and they can make all the money off of the process. I don't know. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I thought the same thing too, right? Why go? Why go south when you know you could go west? I don't know. It, I mean, it's much shorter to the ocean to head west than it is to go all the way south to Houston. So right. unless it's just cheaper to use the insane volume of processing that they already have as far as plants and things. Sure. Uh, okay. I don't, I don't have any idea. So they, did they actually map which uh, landowners were going to be affected by proposed yeah. uh, plots? Uh, and they, and they actually, I mean, they did have a lot of people that were willing to, you know, lease their land out or uh, sell their land. I don't know what the process was, uh, but there were people that were holding out and that they didn't want that. And, uh, but, and so they went into trying to take eminent domain, which seems weird to me that, I mean, I, I get eminent domain from the standpoint of like, it's for a public good. And you, you know, every, you know, we, uh, you know, the, 
the the city or the state or you know the country can can all benefit from it but when it's the benefit just you know kind of just resides in you know the hands of a foreign corporation uh, it seems weird and you know it seems you know and the other thing i mean like all all the environmental things aside uh, you know, that should be something that people that are very, you know, interested in personal property and, you know, limited government should get behind. Uh, and it's weird to me that they're not. And that, in fact, they're, they're on the other side of the issue that it kind of bothers me. Hmm. So for people who are interested in that issue, I mean, uh, the, the tweet that you sent out, and I'll link to it in the show notes, um, was like T-shirts and all kinds of stuff. I don't remember what mm-hmm. it was. If, if they want to get involved, they can contact who? Yeah, uh, Bold Nebraska is the organization, uh, and it's uh, so the state of that is they're currently still fighting it, or it's pretty dead. Or it's dead at this point, okay. uh, but I think that's it's something that uh, I, you know it, I don't know if it's dead, dead. Yeah. You know what I mean? So what are the, what are the Nebraska senators saying? Like the not not the state senate. Well, I don't know. So what are the what are the politicians saying about the Nebraska pipeline? Are they mostly for it or? There is a lot of support for it, yeah. In the Nebraska, Nebraska political system? Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, obviously when you're constructing a pipeline like that, it does create jobs for or, or provide work for people that are doing the development of the pipeline. But it's short-lived. It's not long-term. Um, uh, so a lot of times, are, and, you know, an argument that's used in favor of it is, oh, look, you know, like it's, you know, you're creating jobs. Why wouldn't you want to have these jobs in Nebraska? Uh, which makes sense. But they're not long-term jobs. Uh, at all they're just it's kind of a short-term gig to build a, the pipeline and then they're gone and what the weird thing is so this is keystone xl uh you know just in the last few days there's been news coverage of the first keystone pipeline uh that's leaking uh, somewhere in south dakota or something like that and uh you know they had a no fly zone over the area and it's just sort of been a big uh you know, they trying to keep people out from reporting on it oh wait so there's there's already a pipeline called the keystone pipeline yeah there's a keystone that pipeline goes to houston already I don't know where it goes. Oh, okay. But Keystone XL is, is going to be a bigger one yep. going to Houston. Right. Oh, I see. Okay. So Bold Nebraska, if people want to jump on that. Yeah. And we'll link to the show notes. Cool. Yeah, so let's uh, let's talk about the Gates OPS school board uh, campaign. So last, if I read your blog correctly, last December, uh, after a couple of years of working with the um, the parent-teacher association, mm-hmm. uh, for you, you mentioned earlier you have four kids all in OPS. Yep. Um, what made you think that uh, running for school board as a lazy person who can't imagine wanting to do that, all the work that would be involved <laughs> in being an OPS, uh, what made you decide to uh, chase that? Well, yeah, so I've got four children, two that are in, uh, in old enough for school and two that will soon be old enough for school. Um, and I'm currently in my second term as the president of the Edison Elementary PTA at Edison Elementary, just down the road. Uh, and then I'm also uh, the vice president of the Wilson Focus uh, School Parent Pride, uh, which is a PTO. So there's a difference between PTAs and PTOs. PTA's uh, sort of answer to a state PTA and then a national PTA. It's like a larger umbrella organization. Really? Yeah. So, yes. And so, yeah, exactly. So people join our PTA for $5, and we send $4.25 of that to the state. Uh, and then the state takes a cut of it, and then they send some up to the national. Uh, really? Yeah. Uh, and I thought it was just local parents that mm, wanted it. No. To... So that's PTA is is one of these like nationally affiliated. But if you're talking about a PTO, that's a parent-teacher organization, those are all independent. So they're, they're their own things. And so they don't really have to answer to any higher 
higher group or anything like that. So can a single school have a PTA and a PTO or multiple PTOs? Um, theoretically, uh, but I don't know. I mean, I, it's, it's either PTAs or PTOs, typically what I've seen. And there is a trend to be moving from a PTA to a PTO for, you know, for a lot of reasons, right? I mean, uh, you're, you're sort of bound by the PTA. Um, you know, for example, the bylaws that we have as a PTA, it's sort of like a fill in the blank. Like you kind of fill in where you want to fill in or, you know, they, they give you these blanks to fill in, but you can't really change things too dramatically. Like we have to charge a membership fee as a PTA, uh, as where PTOs, everybody can be a member. So you know, 90% so. of that money goes up to the state or federal or the national yeah. level. Yeah, and what up. do they use it for? Well, they do a lot of, uh, like advocacy things and lobbying for different things. So they, they put together like a platform of issues that they're, uh, you know, they're going to pursue for that particular year. Um, but yeah, <laughs> so we're actually in the process of moving, you know, we've, we've sent out all the, the notices and, you know, it's kind of a lengthy process to move from a PTA to a PTO. Um, and they discourage it, uh, clearly because, you know, they're, they're losing organization. They're losing that money. Why is it a lengthy process? Why can't you and the other parents say, Hey, we're a PTO now? Well, here's the deal. Uh, if you have raised money as a PTA uh, for years and years and you've got a bank account, which we do, and you have things that you've purchased as a PTA, well, they can kind of stake claim on all of that stuff because you have raised it as a PTA. Oh, sure. So, uh, you know, if we were to dissolve and say we're going to be a PTO, then they're going to say, well, you, you know, you, you got to give us all your money that you have in your bank account. So, yeah. so on and so forth. But you spend it all. I mean, yeah, well, yeah. So it's <laughs> right. not a problem. Right. Well, that's interesting. I had no idea that this was a national hydra of uh, current teacher association. Yes. Uh, you know, and uh, I don't know. I mean, I, it's I think it's kind of easy for even a PTA uh, to be a little bit lazy about what they're doing. Uh, so I, I've been involved. I've been on the board for four years uh, as a member for five. Uh, and when I got involved, it was largely just a, like a wing of the school that was uh, kind of running the PTA. Uh, and you know, the excuse was, well, parents don't care, or they don't have time, or they're not involved, and things like that. So uh, it was just teachers or, or staff at the school that were running it, and basically they would you know, in the fall, they would send kids out with like catalog fundraisers or different things like that and uh, raise some money. Uh, and then they could use that for different programs or whatever that teachers had at the school. And it wasn't ever like a formal thing where you were going to vote about you know, where the money would go. You know, they would set up a budget sort of, but it would be basically whatever they did the year before. Uh, and, you know, you, you know, at schools, you know, in any organization, but you hit into sort of like a a year-over-year -year tradition of what things are, you know, how things are working or whatever. Um, but anyway, when we came, you know, we came in and uh, the, you know, there was a kind of a, a, an influx of parents, kindergarten parents, and some of us stuck around. Uh, and, you know, when it came to, like, running for PTA president or vice president, uh, there was a, a staff member at the school who said, oh, I think maybe I'll run for president. You should be, you know, I'd like to have you run as vice president. And at that time, then we started doing things like, Oh, you know, like auditing the books and trying to be on the up and up. Uh, and, you know, we found there was, you know, a lot of, a lot of, I don't know, lazy ways of handling things before that were, that we had tried to fix. And so over the years, we really have increased engagement from parents in, in the PTA because we changed a lot of the ways, a lot of the things that we did. Uh, one example is, uh, 
you know, a little one, but it makes a lot of sense. Uh, we used to meet at seven o'clock on the first Thursday of every month. Well, if you meet at seven o'clock, you know, usually bedtime routines for elementary kids kick in about seven thirty, seven forty-five, and so that's a little late to be meeting. So we we moved it to six o'clock. Not a big deal. Uh, but the next thing that we did is then we said, well, you know, if we want people to show up at six o'clock. Um, we know that they're coming home from work and they have, you know, to worry about feeding their kids or whatever. And so it's like, well, here's the deal. We'll just go out and get some Little Caesars pizza or we'll ask local uh, restaurants or, you know, in our area to sponsor some food or give us a good deal on food. So then we provide food. And so when parents don't have to worry about, you know, feeding their kids before coming, then they're more likely to come. Uh, the third thing that we did is we, uh, while we filled out our building permit for the library where we meet, we've also filled out the building permit for the gym. Uh, and then we have either teachers or parents volunteer to keep an eye on kids in the gym. And so that way, if people don't have to worry about, uh, you know, somebody to watch their children, if they can just bring their kids along to these meetings, and if there's two parents at home, uh, then ultimately you've just doubled the people that are coming to your meeting that way, mm. uh, which is great. And then the last thing that we did is um, we changed the way that the budgeting process works. So it used to be when you first show up at a PTA meeting, uh, you know, in August, you're, everyone's excited and they're ready to go. And, they're you know, you have a lot of kindergarten parents or first time, you know, first time parents that are like eager to, to, to participate in their in their child's education. Uh, the first meeting, they sort of slapped down a budget that was put together over the summer by the board. And they say, here's everything that we're, we want to spend our money on over the year. And so when it comes to uh, cultivating new ideas or having uh, different perspectives and what to do, the answer is, well, we've already made our budget. Come to the meeting in May and, you know, well, maybe we can do these things next year, which is really discouraging for first time parents. Uh, and so we flip the way that we do our budgeting. And basically, uh, we, we, we have an idea of, of, of how much money we, that we need to, to raise, sort of. I mean, based on what we've done in years past, but we don't ever allocate things from a budgeting perspective ahead of time. And if a teacher or any member of the PTA, teacher, parent, or anybody who's a member, if they have an idea for a project that they want to do, they just fill out a budgeting, a budget request. And so the budget request says, this is what I want. Uh, this is uh, who it affects. Does it affect all the students at the school? Is it for mainly staff and teachers? Uh, you know, these these are areas where we've looked for other sources of funding, whether it would be grants that are available, uh, and you know. Then as a PTA, we would vote on them individually as they come in. And the benefit to that is, uh, you know, when, when you're voting on things individually, you understand what they are uh, and you understand what they are ahead of time. Like, for example, you're, you're voting on materials for the science fair in, 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 you know, in August, September, and you know that the science fair is in the spring. You're kind of aware of that. And then as you're voting on things individually, you have more buy-in, so to speak. So when it comes to doing things like fundraising, you know that, look, we've approved this much and we need to make sure that we can reach this goal to do it. Uh, and so those five things that we did really has transformed our organization from being more or less, you know, just a couple staff members in the workroom, you know, deciding on where the money goes and maybe marking it in the book somewhere uh, to being more of an organization that seems uh, you know, of, you know, that is available for parents to participate and teachers to participate and just be, uh, you know, uh, more open to new things instead of just repeating things year after year after year. Hmm. So, and I think I met you like a couple of years ago and at an open Nebraska thing when you were, and you were leading a project 
um, on uh, school enrollment throughout mm-hmm. the state. Is that right? And d- describe that project. Yeah. So uh, uh, my oldest daughter, she's in fourth grade now, um, started school at, in, the, in our neighborhood school and had a really wonderful kindergarten teacher. She was great. Uh, it was a perfect, just great experience for her, uh, and which is great because her younger sister is 19 months younger. Uh, and so when when our second daughter uh, started kindergarten, we already had a good relationship with with the, the teacher there, and she had the same teacher, and it was great. So we went to the uh, uh, they call it safe walk to school, uh, and that's where you go <clears throat> and you meet the teacher, you find out where you're sitting, and you know it's sort of like a, a week before school starts or a few days before school starts. But when we went there uh, with when my second daughter was getting ready to you know start kindergarten, uh, we walked into the classroom, and there was just tons and tons and tons and tons of chairs i mean it was like they were crammed in this classroom and it was definitely a different environment than when my when my older daughter was there and you know so we were looking around and and you know kind of checking out where she was sitting and then as soon as some of the other parents left you know we asked the the teacher you know because we had a good relationship with her before we said how are things going you know and she said you know she said i'm 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 a little scared because there's 38 kids that are in my kindergarten class, which seems phenomenally high for a kindergarten class. I mean, it's, it's high for any class, but there were 38 kids in this class. And she said, look, I talked to the principal and the principal says she's waiting on the district. And, uh, you know, this has been weeks and weeks. And, I, you know, I don't know. We're starting school in a few days and I've got 38 kids in this class. Uh, and so that was, I mean, obviously a concern. And, 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 uh, and so, you know, I talked to the principal and the principal says, oh, I'm waiting on the district. And, the district said, you know, so then I was like, well, I'm going to talk to the district. And the district said, no, we, there's really not enough room in that school, according to the principal. So we're not really doing anything. Uh, and they said, you know, and the, the other thing is, you know, these these numbers sort of level out over the first few days anyway. Like, I we don't anticipate there's going to be 38 kids. Wait, the principal was waiting on the school district to do what? Well, bring in another teacher or, oh, okay. you know, solve the problem. But did, she did really have- wasn't. I mean, I found out later that, like, that was just sort of to, to you know, to make me stop asking questions or something like that, right? Did the the building have a physical capacity to throw a couple more? Yeah, so the the story was that there was a teacher there that provided, she wasn't a classroom teacher, but she provided some some sort of uh, service for kids. I don't know if it was like a speech uh, speech coach, not a speech coach, but I don't know, some some other thing that was there for a teacher that had a classroom that didn't have a full-time group of kids in the classroom and kids would come there and so there was there was talk that well maybe this teacher could go into a different area that they had some portables or something like that that there was a classroom available that was not really being used as for the full potential and i only knew that because other teachers sort of you know i was, I was by that time i was on the pta and you know we had been around the school a lot and developed some relationships so um that's what the, i mean the principal kind of used the excuse of we don't have enough room but she told me that we're waiting on the district, and the district said, no, the principal said there's not enough room. So anyway, long and short of it is, you know, like I said, oh, they said, you know, the numbers are going to level out, which they did. There were 40. It leveled out to 40, which is phenomenally crazy for a kindergarten class. Uh, and it was frustrating because, you know, at that point, you talk to the principal who tells you one thing. You talk to the district who tells you another thing. And so that was a little, you know, obviously frustrating. So I sent a couple tweets and I tweeted to the news. Uh, and I tell you, the news likes to know these kinds of things and they were very interested in that. So, 
uh, I had a couple news agencies come down and interview me outside the school. Then they went down to the school district and they interviewed, you know, their communication communications person down there. Um, and then two weeks later, we had another teacher at the school and, you know, <laughs> the, the class size basically was halved. So, uh, good things came out of it that way. But thinking about that, I'm thinking, how can you not anticipate 40 kids in a kindergarten class? And so when we went to this open Nebraska thing, you know, when you're talking about like, um, you know, city data that's available of like, you know, home sales and, and different things like that, like you should be able to sort of predict a little bit, uh, through data, like, uh, like what to expect in terms of schools and, and, and how much to have. So it's how, does, how do they do planning? I mean, like, how do they do staffing if they don't know who's inbound? Right. You know, and I think that, I mean, they, they must, I mean, they must have a, a better, uh, finger on the pulse. Uh, but somewhere along the line, something was, was just sort of fell short. Uh, so that was really frustrating, but, uh, that was what kind of got me thinking about at the open Nebraska thing of like, how can, you know, how can we put something together where you can sort of map these and just basically visualize? And it was interesting because, you know, you would look at, uh, Elkhorn, which is, you know, out West, uh, and, and very known for a great school district. You look at that after we got all that data and finally in the database and we were able to map it out and look at it. I mean, just the, the trend of that was phenomenal, you know, and here in my neighborhood, when we moved here, you know, seven years ago, uh, the first Halloween, we went walking around and it was all just like really old people or they were like vacationing in Texas for the, for the winter. But it's slowly changing over, over time. And now there's all sorts of kids in this neighborhood. So it's really, you're seeing a big change in the neighborhood that's very clear for us as neighbors here, uh, that you would think that that would be available for the school district to be able to predict that stuff. But, you know, and I think they probably do. I think there was probably another communication breakdown somewhere along the line, but I didn't really get the full story. Probably. Yeah. I mean, I remember two years ago, you were fired up because it was your own kids, uh, that, that got you, uh, excited about the project. What was the actual, so what you did is you pulled every single, they had Nebraska wide data for every school and mm-hmm. its enrollment figures. And so you could graph the, you know, 20 years worth of data or whatever, right. As far as enrollment goes. Mm-hmm. So that, that's all looking backwards, but was there, and then the tool you built was, Hey, look at all these graphs. Mm-hmm. Was that the gist of the thing? Yep. Pretty much. So there was no predictive no. kind of capacity. No. And that was what we were really missing out was sort of like, whether it would be like, home, you know, home buyers or different things like that. But, you know, in our neighborhood, we have, there's some different apartment complexes and I think there's a lot of change there. So it would be kind of difficult to do the predictive stuff going forward. But it was really interesting to see, uh, even at the school level, um, you know, like uh, a second grade class that was really big one year. Well, the next year, the third grade class is really big. You know, I mean, it, well, yeah, you know, that's how it is. But you and you know, and I, I trust that they, they have all of that or they're doing those things clearly. But, um, yeah, that was the idea for that. And it was really interesting to, uh, and to work with such a smart team of people to put that together. Yeah, that was cool. So last December, so now I'm jumping forward again. Um, last December is when you started the OPS run. Mm-hmm. But had that been brewing in your head for a year that you wanted to? No, uh, not really. So I, our current school board rep is fantastic. She lives in Dundee, uh, and she's just so a very. You're talking about District 3? Yep, sub District 3. Yep. So just to. Uh, frame this a little bit for people who haven't been reading your website for an hour like I did. Um, the, uh, the, the OP, OPS, the Omaha Public Schools board is a nine member board mm-hmm. and they have, I think your site said $828 million annual budget. 
something like 830 something yeah i mean it's it's larger than the city of omaha's budget yeah so maybe explain how that how how does the board actually function does the board hire and fire principals or like how does what does the board actually do yeah so the the role of the board is a couple things i mean they they're responsible for hiring and firing the superintendent uh and setting policies and goals and the vision for the school district the superintendent is the one person on top of the executive tree of exactly. the entire OPS. So the board sets the vision and the goals and the policies, uh, and then they hire, you know, they're responsible for the superintendent who then is supposed to execute on those. Uh, and so then they're supposed to evaluate the princi- or the superintendent based on how well that superintendent is fulfilling the, the vision and mission of the board. So does the superintendent have a full staff somewhere in Omaha that is the you know the corporate headquarters of all the schools is that how it works yeah so there's the the teacher administration center the TAC building on 38th 38th and coming okay uh, it's a big you know it used to be an old uh, high school in Omaha uh, but yeah that I mean that they're they've got tons of people down there uh, and there's you know there's assistant superintendents and secretaries and all sorts of things that are down there that that assist the superintendent for sure I mean there's definitely a large large administrative part of the Omaha Public School District. But you need that. I mean, there's 52,000 students that go to this, you know, right. that are in the school district. So you need that. Uh, but they're, they're down there and, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of criticism that they're a top heavy, uh, you know, they spend a lot of money down there and there's, you know, then when you compare that to the money that's spent at the actual building level, it's, you know, it's remarkably different. Uh, and so, uh, that's, that's one of the things that when I talk to people about, uh, their feelings of the school district or concerns with the school district is I hear a lot of feedback about, look, you know, it's it's a very top-heavy school district, and are we spending the dollars in the right areas? Yeah. So, I mean, absolute worst-case scenario that something's going horribly wrong, the superintendent, the board can actually take action if the superintendent isn't doing what I'm trying to understand the political structure because I've been working in the private sector forever and mm-hmm. I don't know anything about how, how schools actually run. So the, the, the board can actually advise and have, you know, uh, some sort of power over, Hey, the superintendent is not handling this appropriately. Mm-hmm. Correct. That, that's how that works. And then the board is elected. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the only elected set of people in the entire system right the right. entire rest of the system is hired from the organizational structure itself correct right? so the so the board and you you live in district three mm-hmm. now i'm just speculating so tell me when i screw this up so i think you said there's nine seats on the board so it's geographically split up the entire ops area is split up geographically and on your website i saw i can put in my address and it'll tell me what what uh sorry district mm-hmm. right what district sub district district yeah Okay, so in and do you have to physically live in the the district right. that, that you're running for? Yep, exactly. Okay. Um, so it's not necessarily where your kids go to school; it's where you live. So everyone who lives here and pays taxes here in District Three, where we're sitting right now, um, elects hopefully you, and you are the elected voice that hopefully is keeping uh, things running as smoothly as they can be in the entire employee structure right. of however many 
tens of thousands of employees we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's about nine thousand in the you nine thousand so, total employees. Um, but yeah, so that's the public part of public schools, uh, and you know this dates back to you know the very. I mean, this is this has been the structure for a long, long, long time uh, to have people that are members of the public serving on the public school board <clears throat> to provide that oversight. Yeah. And so do you control the, the budgetary things or the, or you, you, the superintendent is, is setting budgetary allocations and you guys are just oversight for. Yeah, no. So <clears throat> the financials are, are sort of, you know, drawn out and presented and voted on and the whole nine yards. Yeah. Okay. At, at the board mm-hmm. meeting. So how often does the board meet? Uh, they meet two times a month. Oh, so, okay. uh, every other Monday. So how much total work, like say you're elected in November is November yeah. the vote? Yeah, exactly. So I have one opponent. So that means we don't have a primary. If I had, if I had more than one opponent, then we would have a primary in May and then the top two would be on the ballot in November. Uh, but in my particular subdistrict, I only have one opponent. So we're on the ballot in November. Um, but, uh, yeah. What was your question? <laughs> Oh, every, oh, so the so the election. Uh, so how do you? So where is it on the on the general ballot? The same ballot that's yes. So the same ballot where people are voting for the the president of the United States and everyone else below that. Mm. You're hopefully no, you will be. I will be. On you that. will yeah. be on the ballot on the back too. side, like way down at the bottom. Yeah, but I mean they call that yeah. a very down ballot race, but that's what <laughs> down ballot, <laughs> and then. That only appears if you live in District 3. Correct. If, if you live geographically in this part of OPS. Right. Right. Otherwise, you'll have two from you know whatever subdistrict you're in if you live in an OPS school. Now, then you've got District 66, which also Alexis and Miller to Alexis. And, you know, so everybody, you know, the these, these public schools that have the boards uh, will have people. But, you know, this year it's one, three, five, seven, and nine that are up for, for re-election. And it's a four-year term. Um, volunteer, totally. Like, I, you're not paid for this. Oh, your question was how much time? Well, yeah. So when, yeah. once in November, you win the election and you said you made twice a month. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to allocate because I have way too many. Uh, you know, I, I have a million hobbies and I have to allocate my time around. And the, the thought of having my full-time job and and also that much responsibility because I I'm sure you're going to take this extremely seriously when when you're elected in November and for me I'm I'm afraid that like with my psychology that that would turn into a all-consuming mm-hmm. uh, event and you you work full time right uh, on top of that so like how do people juggle like like how many hours a week is this responsibility and how do you juggle that with everything else going on knowing that you know, so much is at stake for, for people's kids. Yep. So it'd, it'd be hard for me to, you know, do my, my day job for money when I, I'm, <laughs> totally. if I was sitting on the board of something that's responsible for, you know, the education of people's children. Uh, yeah. And so for that reason, uh, you know, when I talk to people, I always say, look, on the current school board, only one of the nine current members has a student in an OPS elementary school. Uh, and I think that's probably due to the fact that, look, it takes a lot of time. And if you've got kids in elementary school, you're probably really, really busy, you know, with soccer and ballet and all these different things on top of working and all of that. So I, I get why there isn't a whole lot of, uh, people that, you know, have active kids in the school that are, that are on the board. Is the board paid? 
No, no, no. Not They're at not all. Paid at all. No, it's totally volunteer. Right. So how are you going to juggle that? <laughs> well, yeah. Well, here's the deal. So, like I said, I'm the president of the Edison Elementary PTA, vice president of the Wilson Focus School PTO. I teach a uh, introduction to programming course at the uh, Wilson Focus School every Tuesday. Um, I sit on a board for another organization in in Iowa. I, it's mainly reallocating this extracurricular <laughs> stuff that I'm doing now to focus on this uh, for the four-year term. Oh, so the, the PTA, the, the, these other things that you listed off, you'd probably have to step yes. down from those things. Yes, yep. absolutely. Yeah. And I feel good about that. I mean, so uh, I, in the way it works now, I have uh, my two daughters go to two different schools. My older daughter goes to a focus school, which is part of the OPS public school system, but it's for third through sixth only. Uh, and then my younger daughter goes to my regular neighborhood elementary school. So I'm involved with both of the parent organizations in both schools, uh, which does take some time. Um but we're in a good spot with both organizations where I'm able to sort of move out of there and uh, we'll be fine. Yeah. And I, I, I didn't mean, to, I said I have too many hobbies. I didn't mean to imply this was a hobby at all. <laughs> I'm just, because two years ago when you were doing the project you were working on, I was working on the local, the local boards project. I don't mm-hmm. know if you remember that one, but we, we tried to build the first database of all of the boards that exist. Right. And try to just have a calendar of what board seats are open and when are they coming open and when do people vote for that? And say you're an electrician and you'd like to be on the serve on the electrical board. How would you even know if there's a seat available and when would you sit on it and all these things? And, you know, from that perspective, I, I was just, my, my mind was boggled that, that government works at all because mm-hmm. you have to find all these people who are willing to, to do right. what, what you're willing to do. So. The amount of the, the time and effort and, and focus, uh, that's, that's amazing. So, so what do you, uh, hope to, um, focus on as a board member? Like, what are, what are your goals? Like, November rolls yep. around and everything goes great. And yeah, uh, I think that our school district could benefit from, you know, putting an, uh, an emphasis on supporting and fostering parent groups. Uh, many years ago, uh, I was told, and this is before my time in the subdistrict or in the in the school district, they used to have basically a PTA PTO council where they would get parent groups together uh, and to help share ideas. Uh, because I believe very strongly in the power of these parent groups. Uh, students that have engaged parents in their education are more likely to stay in school longer, uh, like school more, do better in school, so on and so forth. And so, if you can get parents engaged that way, you have benefits in terms of student achievement. But what you also have is an avenue for meaningful communication from the school district down. So I don't know if you followed um, a little bit of the human growth and development uh, stuff that was going on at OPS over the last year. Uh, basically, they were updating the sex ed stuff, and people got really mad about it. Yeah, uh, And that was a huge communications failure. Uh, but if they had engaged in active parent groups that they worked with and partnered with, you could get factual information to these parent groups and really mitigate a lot of that nonsense that happened before because it was i don't know if you saw that you know down that meeting i call it wrestlemania what happened down there at the tack building when they had it done there was a public forum but there was just an overwhelming amount of people that they didn't let anybody speak so it really wasn't a forum 
and people were mad. And then for the next weeks and weeks and weeks after that at the board meetings, people would show up for the public comment uh, and they would take the five minutes that you're allotted for your public comment. And they would state what they're saying and whether it was factual or whether it was not factual. I mean, all these rumors were about, you know, going around that were basically just totally not true. But people would go down there and say, oh, you don't, I don't want you to update the human growth and development curriculum because you're going to be teaching this to my kindergartner and this is terrible. This was all just fabricated stuff. But that format for them to be able to like give that feedback at a board meeting in the public comment was totally terrible because they didn't have the opportunity to ask questions or correct any of that information or even respond is basically the board members sat there and they listened to people talk for their five minutes. And then that person would sit down and then somebody else would come and talk for five minutes. And it, there was no like dialogue or discussion with that. So the communication was terrible. So a big focus on parent groups as an avenue for meaningful communication within the district. That's number one. Number two is because I do have a technology background. I look at the district websites and the different uh, websites and web applications that the, that the school district builds. Uh, remember, we're responsible for communicating clearly to 52,000 students and the families of 52,000 students uh, that have very diverse backgrounds um, that uh, come from all sorts of socioeconomic you know, areas. And uh, right now you find that the district websites are, you know, very outdated, um, very slow, um, sort of mobile friendly, but not really mobile friendly, things like that. And when you're talking about uh, a lot of lower income folks that only that may only have access to the web on a smartphone and you're not providing that information in a way that's usable on a smartphone, then you're you're sort of alienating that group of folks. And it's unfortunate that it's the lower income folks that are being alienated from that. So, um, you know, when, when they go to the, the school board, there's, there's lawyers and there's people that are from nonprofits or there's people that are small business owners and they all bring their sort of backgrounds or perspectives to the board. There's no technology perspective on the board now. And so I hope to bring that to the board and, you know, and to kind of have that perspective. And I think that would be important. So making sure that we're making sensible decisions with our technology on the school board, because people, I mean, you, you can look, they spend a lot of money on technology or IT things. And a lot of times, you know, maybe it's not necessarily the best, but there's really nobody with that uh, technology expertise to be able to even recognize that. And so I, I want to bring that. And the other thing is, uh, I'm a big, big proponent of having opportunities for uh, students to learn uh, programming concepts. Um, I think this is really important. And so I, what I would like to do is I'd like to see Omaha take the lead in providing a way for every student in, this, in, in, our, in our school district to have the opportunity to learn you know, introduction to programming or basically some of the programming concepts. Not because I think that everybody, uh, is going to turn out to be the next Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg, or whatever, but you know, you know, you know this and I know this that programming helps you, uh, it helps with problem solving. It helps with, you know, creativity and all these different things. So I, I would like to see us, uh, take the lead and sort of, uh, provide ways for all students in our, in our school district to have the opportunity to be exposed to computer programming. Yeah. Yeah, and I didn't, we, we had nothing. I mean, I'm old, so uh, back in the ice age when I was, was getting started, nothing existed until you went to college, and then college convinced you that you couldn't be a programmer, and so you dropped out <laughs> and uh, programmed computers for 20 years. Not that, you know, that, not that that happened to me. But, uh, yeah, 
to, to back up to the communication with the um, with, with the paranormal group, I, I had a friend that was attending the the big blow up meeting, um, and I was surprised to hear that from her perspective, what happened is the meeting was going fine, and then these church groups that had bust in people from out of town uh, came into the back of the room, and that's when things went crazy. I don't know if you were in the room at the time. I was. <clears throat> I, you know, I described the scene as WrestleMania because it was just crazy. I mean, there were. I mean, not only did they not have enough materials available for everybody. They didn't have enough space for everybody, and they actually made the call to bring all the Spanish-speaking individuals into one room and then all the English-speaking people to another room. So they were, like, segregating people from the get-go for that. Now, because I think they, their plan was to, you know, provide, you know, in both English and Spanish. And then they're like, ah, oh, there's so many people, we can't fit them all in the auditorium or in this boardroom, so we'll split them up and we'll go that way. What, what was this? Was this a... A board meeting? No, this, this was, was so. This was a community forum, is what they called it. Uh, but there was no forum part about it, and that was what was frustrating for people. So it, and I think, <clears throat> yes, I mean, they, there were people that were probably you know totally unaffiliated with the school district that were bust in that had some materials that were factually inaccurate, and they had they basically wanted to impose their beliefs on uh, you know on everybody else. Yes, but what happened was they came. They basically they came out. They had uh, somebody that had a medical background uh, go through some phone surveys. They conducted a phone survey that, you know, really surveyed a relatively low number of people in the school district. And they basically said, you know, well, you know, the majority by far support all of these, you know, changes to the sex ed curriculum. Basically to show this entire room that, look, look, this is what everybody wants. Even though you were this big group of people that are opposing this, this is mainly what everybody wants. So they did that, and then they had, a, you know, basically a, some sheets that they wanted people to basically take a survey on, but they didn't have enough of those, and so they were trying to make a whole bunch of copies for those, so not everybody had that. But what people ultimately wanted was the ability to speak their mind, uh, and when it became clear that they weren't able to do that, that's when it kind of got crazy. Uh, and that's when people started yelling. And, uh, you know, there was like a viral video. I mean, it was, I mean, it was, it was picked up on national news. Uh, you know, you know, even, you know, and so that's what bugs me. I mean, you know, all this disclaimer here is like, I fully support the updated human growth and development curriculum. I mean, it hadn't been updated in 30 years. And so, yes, it was good for them to update the human growth and development curriculum. However, the process that they went that they went about really it lost. I mean, it, it lost a lot of the faith and trust of the community. And the problem is when you have then when it's sort of uh, reduced down to you know they had this this big uh, big community forum that wasn't a forum, and then they had people going to the board meetings, speaking for five minutes back and forth with no opportunity for, for communication. Uh, what it ended up doing is basically putting parents against parents and community members against community members uh, and basically having you know the community sort of fight you know, about these kinds of things and while they just sort of overlooked and watched. And the problem with that is... As a community, if there are things that we need to, as a community, unite on and work together on, things like this put groups of parents against each other or organizations against each other. And so I think it really hurt the relationships between parents and, and community organizations and different things like that. So <clears throat> I don't know. It, it, 
it was it was crazy, uh, definitely crazy. And I think they learned a lot. I know they learned a lot. And I think that if they were to go about this uh, down the road, hopefully it's not another 30 years from now, but I think they really, I, I would hope that they can take some of the lessons that they learned. But the, the long and short of it is people want the opportunity to speak their mind, which is good, but they should do that in a way that allows communication to happen. So you could, instead of speaking for five minutes about something that is totally untrue, you let them speak for a little bit, but then have a discussion about why that's really not what the school district is going to be doing and not the intent and all those kinds of things. So was that a one-time meeting that was, was organized around this one particular issue? So there's not an ongoing opportunity for uh, that kind of feedback? Like if I've got an axe to grind against OPS, I, I don't have, there's not a regularly scheduled sort of mechanism like that? So there is not a regularly scheduled, basically open mic night kind of a thing, <laughs> which, which it would be good if there was. I mean, there, there's a, <laughs> you can go, well, yeah. I mean, honestly, if, if it can be in a way where there can be a discussion around it, yeah. right? Uh, there, you, anybody can go down to a, uh, to a board meeting. And as long as they get there before the meeting starts, they can fill out a form for a request to speak. And you can get five minutes to talk about really whatever you want. I've done it a few times. Uh, but there's no, there's no dialogue there. You basically speak for your five minutes and they say, thank you. And then you sit down and then you, you know, sit through the rest of the three to four to five to six hour meeting. And then at the end, you kind of hope that someone's going to come up to you and talk to you about what you said. And sometimes they do. And sometimes they don't. Oh, you, you speak. So, oh, so if I want my five minutes in front of the board of OPS, mm -hmm. I fill out a form. I start, I talk at the top mm -hmm. and then six hours of content, which isn't necessarily this, the, my issue. And then maybe if people aren't exhausted from six hour meetings, which I'm sure I would be right. <laughs> then maybe they'll talk to the, so that's kind yeah, of maybe somebody will come up and talk to you like afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. But then they, they do have a secretary that is supposed to follow up with different things and, and you know, and they're pretty responsive for the most part. A lot of times, I mean, I found that, if you've got a question, they're more likely to like send you a screenshot from a PowerPoint that has a whole bunch of arrows and boxes, you know, that maybe doesn't explain what you were asking, but it makes you look, makes it look like they have like a really, a uh, lot of thought put into this. And you know, yeah. you know what I mean? Here's Sometimes with that information overload is, is used a little bit in those kind yeah. of things, but here's the plan. <laughs> Trust me, there's a diagram. I got a diagram. There's diagram. arrows here, you know? <laughs> yeah. Huh. Wow. Yeah, for I, I don't know that that feels like a ton of. I mean, to me, it it feels like so much responsibility. I mean, when when my son was was going to school, I mean, it was so much work just to get him to do homework at mm -hmm. night. You know that that for me at the time, if I'm working forty hours and I'm helping him with his math, I couldn't even think about. It. <laughs> You know, so a, a commitment like that. Well, how is it that the, the nine people that are serving, you, you said one of them, only one of them has a student, the, the rest? At an elementary school. So some uh, of them have students. There's a couple, two or three, that have middle school or high school. And there's uh, some on the board that uh, either have no kids or very, very young kids. Yeah. And, and I, from that local boards project where I was staring at lists of hundreds of boards, I, I really was wondering, like, who does... Uh, who does do all this work? And I, I've only gone to one. I, I live in a sanitary improvement district. I'm not even in a town. 
and just the one meeting that I went to at that, I mean, the, you know, that that's amazing to me that people volunteer for that stuff. And this is coming from a guy who volunteers for everything. Like I volunteer for tons of stuff, <laughs> but the, the, the legal things and the, I mean, you know, worrying about budgets, I, I like to get stuff done. And so a lot of that, uh, the paperwork process, um, is, is just, I, I can't, I can't do it. So I'm really thankful that people like you, uh, will do it. Uh, well, I hope to have the opportunity to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I know that it's, a, it's going to be a tremendous time commitment. But um, you know, the thing is, everybody's busy. You know, it, even people that really don't do too much, they feel like they're the busiest people of all time. So, like, everybody's busy, and so it's just a matter of allocating that time. I'm fortunate to work for myself to be able to set my own hours, which is helpful. I work from home. My wife's a stay-at-home mom. All of that helps, uh, and so I tend, you know, I plan. Fully plan to use that to my advantage when it when it comes to the board. I do know that they have different committee meetings and different things like that that happen during the day. That if you had a nine to five somewhere, uh, it'd be very difficult unless you had a very you know understanding boss. It'd be difficult to make it to those. But that's you know it seems to me that well look I'm in this position now where I'm working for myself and setting my own hours and being able to do that. I'm going to use that to my advantage. Uh, and, you know, winding down some of the other obligations that I have with PTAs and PTOs and different things like that and, and being able to focus on that I think is going to be a good thing. And I would think there's a bunch of prep and a bunch of post work after each of those meetings. I would think. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, there is. You could uh, eat your whole week. Basically, then... yeah, Mondays are shot, <laughs> they basically say. Um, but, you know, that that's just the way it is. Now, you know, the fact of the matter is, especially in a, in a city like Omaha where you're, you're dealing with such a large school district, uh, there's a lot of folks that maybe use the board as a stepping stone to something else. Maybe they think that someday they want to run for city council or state legislature or something like that. But for me, I, I, and I'm very upfront that I'm not using this as a stepping stone to anything else. I have no desire to go on to any other position. I'm not looking for a resume booster. I, you know, it's not like I want to then do this for a few years and then run for something else. That isn't the case at all. And I, and so that's, you know, I'm all in it for the reason of being on the school board and the school board only. Every megalomaniac says that. <laughs> <laughs> and then they get elected. Yeah, but. And it's on to the next thing. My wife is very clear that she will not. And, you know, and that's not something that I would want to do anyway. You're not doing a 2020 presidential run? <laughs> <laughs> no. Nope. The field, it's an amazing process. <laughs> I don't know if you've been paying any attention, but. Uh, Boy, yeah, it's been a it's been a fun uh, fun year in the uh, political I, arena. I pay too much attention to that. Oh, do you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole another lifetime of podcasts. I think that I won't I won't rant. Cool. Okay. Well, your uh, let's see, your website is uh, gatesforops.com. Yep. And then you've got a Facebook group, which is also uh, is it? Yep. Facebook.com slash gatesforops. Cool. And uh, between now and November, uh, what would you have people do? Well, you know, it seems silly, but honestly, likes on a Facebook page matter a lot when it comes to a local race like this. Uh, and, and the good news is then you can kind of follow things that I'm doing. Um, I'm also doing something that's kind of unique, you know, if, I believe for, you know, for a local race like this or for any races. Uh, on uh, Tuesdays, I work at a coffee shop uh, and it's a, it's sort of a changing schedule, uh, but coffee shops that are in or really near my sub district, I work on just Tuesday mornings from a coffee shop. And so that provides an opportunity for people that maybe they don't want to have like a, 
an actual meeting with me. Like they don't want to schedule something on the calendar. But if I, if they know and they can see that I'm at a coffee shop, they can drop by and talk about different things or introduce themselves or just kind of share with me what they're interested in or uh, what their concerns are with the school district. So check my coffee schedule. I meet uh, every Tuesday. Uh, and so that's a good opportunity to come down and chat with me. Um, oh, you're there all day working anyway. Well, yeah, usually in the morning. So I'll go down, I'll drop my daughter off at school, and then I'll go work at the coffee shop until about yeah, 12, 1230 or so. I'll bring some lunch home to my wife and my boys at home. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's I, I just work. And then if, if people drop by and talk, then we can talk about we can talk about PTAs, PTOs, school board, technology, whatever the case may be. But it's kind of fun. No, very cool. Yeah. So check out the website. Uh, I've got a Facebook group. Uh, the, I mean, really the biggest thing is to connect with folks that live in my subdistrict. So if you have people, if you know people that live in my subdistrict, introduce me and, you know, tell them about me or why I'm running and these kinds of things. And uh, that would be really helpful. I've got a really good tool on my website where you just put in your address and it'll tell you whether or not you're in my subdistrict. Uh, and so you can use that map to kind of figure out if you have friends that are in that area. So, um, for me, uh, Dundee, uh, you know, most of Benson uh, are, you know, are in there. And then uh, to the west, all the way over to like basically 680. Um, and then even south of Dundee a little bit. So, I mean, it's a very regularly drawn uh, subdistrict. But, yeah, you can check it out and put in an address and see if you're in my subdistrict. Cool. Yeah, and I can donate to the – you have a – uh, official organization for I do funding uh, signs for people's yards and that sort of yep. thing. Yep. So I am raising money, and this is a this is a weird thing because um, you know the, you know because I'm a web guy and I've got very talented designer friends that were able to that were so graciously gener- generous. Uh, so my friend John Henry, he's my former business partner, designed my website, and I built this. Uh, this is a uh, built on Laravel PHP. Um, I put that together, and so I, that was a, a big piece that normally people raise money for and spend money on web stuff. But I'm able to do that on my own, which is nice. Um, uh, but what's interesting is I was talking to the current uh, representative in my subdistrict that when she ran last time, her opponent um, was you know pretty well known guy, and he had some endorsements from different you know from the chamber and all these different places. But her opponent raised seventy thousand dollars for the school board race for an OPS for an race. OPS. And so she raised <clears throat> somewhere like twenty to twenty five thousand just to really? like try to match. Yeah. And meanwhile, you have some sub districts where people are running totally unopposed. You know, I mean, so like it's total. It's really weird, but. The idea of raising so much money to run a school board race for, you know, for something that like, look, it's totally a volunteer spot, you know, yeah. uh, no, I, you know, I, I really, you know, and I know a lot of people would say like, oh, Alex, you got to raise money, raise, 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 but you win a local election by knocking on doors. Period. You have some palm cards. You have your literature that you hand out. But you knock on doors. You have to take the time and you knock on doors. It's ten thirty. We can go knock on doors yeah. right now. <laughs> Let's go. So you can donate, and you know, and I would gladly you. I mean, like I'm very uh, careful with the donations, I have, and I've received a, a fair amount of money from some great people in town, uh, and I really appreciate that, and I use it always very smartly for things. But uh, I'm not about to think that I need to go out and raise seventy grand to run for school board. Yeah. And that's not that's not me. That's Did not you watch the Colbert good. Report? Uh yeah, absolutely. So Colbert had his super PAC mm-hmm. that he would uh, slush fund everything through. <laughs> so I, I look forward to seeing the Alex P. Gates helicopter land <laughs> on the front lawn out here. For sure. <laughs> 
Cool. Well, anything else you wanted to talk about? No, this is good. I, what did we chat for a couple hours here, so yeah, <laughs> we're, we're close to recording, I guess. Oh, hour and fifteen. This is a shorter one. I did three hours on uh, anarcho uh, anarcho capitalism. That ah. was the f- episode zero of the podcast. So that was it's significantly that was more exciting than a local school board <laughs> race. <laughs> well, you know this. This episode started with me, and that's exclusive content. So. <laughs> We've never talked about me before in my exciting adventures. No, I really do appreciate it. Alexis, that's fantastic. And yeah, best of luck in November. Thank you.